The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to Getting In, a College Coach Conversation, hosted by Elizabeth Heaton. There are so many challenges involved in the college process, including choosing the right college, planning a payment strategy, creating a high school plan, and much more. The team of experts from College Coach are here to help you find some, if not all, of the answers you need. Now, here is your host, Elizabeth Heaton. Welcome, everyone, to today's episode of Getting In, a College Coach Conversation. I'm Sally Ganga, and I'm filling in for Beth Heaton, the regular host. Now on to today. For my third and last segment, I'll be talking with Alex Bickford, college finance consultant here at College Coach and former senior financial aid officer at Southern New Hampshire University. He and I will be discussing how to negotiate scholarship offers from schools. For my first and second segments, my colleague Steve Brennan and I will be taking a deep dive into the University of California schools. While we won't be talking about the University of California application, uh, we will be talking about the UC schools' varying levels of selectivity and then talking about what these different campuses have to offer. Steve has worked at a, as a college coach consultant since, I believe, 2007, although Steve can, can correct me when he comes on, and he's been based in California until very recently, so he'll be a great asset to this discussion. Welcome, Steve. Thanks, Sally, and you're exactly right, since 2007. Okay. All right, great. And you've been living in California since before then, so I think you're probably pretty familiar with the UCs. I am, Yes. Okay. All right. So I really look forward to hearing your insights. And let's start by talking about how selective um, the different campuses are. Like, I think everybody knows about UC Berkeley and most people know about UCLA. Um, but, you know, they don't really know where the others fall into the echelon. So if you could kind of start by giving us a sense of, you know, maybe what the tiers of selectivity. Sure. All right. Yeah, happy to. And uh, this year, as Usual, Berkeley was slightly just a hair more selective than UCLA. Berkeley had a 17.5% admit rate. UCLA was at 18%. I'm sure there are people in UCLA's uh, dean's office wondering how they can get to 174 for next year, but um, <laughs> maybe, that's, maybe, maybe that's unfair. What surprised me, Sally, as I looked at the numbers, what would you guess would be the third uh, most selective UC? Well, I always figured it was uh, UC San Diego. I did, too. And that's historically what it's been. But last year, for the first time, as I was doing research for today, I found that uh, exactly the same percentage was Santa Barbara, 35.9%. UC Santa Barbara and UC San Diego. Now, UC San Diego had about 3,000 more applications. Um, so they did get a larger application pool. But their percentages were, were, were exactly the same, which I found really interesting. So there's really a big jump between Berkeley and L.A. at, you know, 18% to the next UC about twice that, right, with about 36%. So I thought, I thought that was interesting. So in that sort of middle tier, you can comfortably clump together San Diego, Irvine, Davis, and Santa Barbara. 
Um, Irvine and Davis are at 41 and 42%. So those are all within five percentage points of each other. So it's a pretty big jump. Again, UCLA and Berkeley to that middle tier and then to the third tier of UC Santa Cruz, Riverside, and Merced. Um, Santa Cruz's admit rate for last year was uh, 58%. I don't want to get too bogged down in the numbers, but it's, you know, uh, that's the third tier and there's a pretty significant jump again. So, so those are the tiers, two, four, three, two, LA and Berkeley, then in the middle, Santa Barbara, San Diego, Irvine, Davis, and then uh, Riverside, Merced, and Santa Cruz. Okay, and how, I mean, my sense with um, UC Riverside and UC Merced was that if you met the sort of basic criteria to get into the UC system, um, you were going to be admitted to those campuses. Is that still the case, or have they become more selective than that? That is still the case. And as a proud California, as a proud California taxpayer for all those years, that makes me happy. I think that's great. I think mm-hmm. we need schools that are predictable, that are excellent education opportunities that, that serve the needs of the state well. If California were a country, it would be the world's fifth largest economy, slightly larger than France. Um, and we need good public education and, and Riverside, that's accessible. There's no question that the UC system is good public education, but that's accessible. And Riverside and uh, uh, Merced absolutely absolutely fit that bill. Mm-hmm. Just to give you a little and bit we- of a, a, a... Yeah. Go ahead. No, I was just going to say, you know, what does that look like, right? So... One thing I love, and I love a lot about the UCs, but one thing I love in particular is how transparent they are. A lot of times schools will say, oh, yeah, we're selective and kind of, you know, kind of fudge the data a little bit. All of the UCs report data the same way. So you can really compare oranges to oranges, which is, which is refreshing, and they're all, um, you know, really scrupulous about the data they report. Um, the average, they no longer give a uh, midpoint, the mid. GPA, they now give a range, which I think is more appropriate for most students because so many times students would see that midpoint and say, oh, the average GPA at, at uh, UC Santa Barbara is a 4.2, so I have to have that. No, 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 that's the average. That's the midpoint, right? So I think the range is more helpful. And so, for example, at Riverside, the high school GPA, as the UC calculates it, the high school GPA is a 3.5 to a 4. So mm-hmm. if you're making mostly A's and B's, if you have some good course uh, curriculum if you're making smart choices about the courses you're taking, and the ACT, the mid-50% is 22 to 29, which is a nice broad window. And again, I think that's, I think that's really appropriate and exciting. So the SAT is about 500 to 650 for each of the subsections, roughly. Mm-hmm. Okay, good. So you really, um, I think that that's a great point about the transparency, actually, because I think people are really concerned about, can I get into college anywhere? And so the more information they have, the less they're going to be concerned about that. And I do feel like state colleges in particular have an extra sort of obligation to do that. So, yeah, so I think that that's great. So, but let's let's just talk a little bit about getting into then some of the more selective schools. Like you've given us kind of the range um, kind of at the bottom end, but what would be then, you know, say UC Berkeley, I think everybody knows, you know, a lot of the students again getting in have above a 4.0. They have, you know, top SAT scores, probably above, probably around 1500s or something like that, although there's going to be um, special groups that might be a little different. But what else might be different about them? I mean, I think where people get, um, when I'm talking to people, I think where people get confused is in terms of the kind of the, what they're looking for in terms of activities. So what, what are right. your thoughts about those sort of top tier of selectivity schools? 
Sure, and that's that's really important to keep in mind is that you know the the, the UC system, um, UCLA last year got almost a hundred thousand applications, and they are committed to a holistic review. Which what does that mean? That means that they're looking at the whole person. They're not just looking at the numbers. The Cal State, by contrast, which is another system I love, and uh, love to come back and talk about the Cal State system sometime, but. But the Cal State system doesn't do a holistic review. They really just look at the numbers, your GPA, your courses, and your test scores, and, and get, a, get, a, get a decision. In most cases, there are some exceptions, but that's generally how it works. At the, UC, at the UC system, the University of California system, what they're looking at is the whole person. Who's the, who, who has the kid been the last four years? What has she done? How has she made a difference in her community? And, you know, sometimes I'll talk to families from California. I'll talk to families who say, you know, the kid down the street had perfect grades and perfect scores and she didn't get into UCLA, it's impossible to get in there. And I'm sympathetic to that, especially for long-term Californians because it has gotten so much more selective than it was when maybe their parents were looking at schools. When, you know, you applied to, you know, three UCs and you got into all three and, and you could transfer from one to the other and it was a very different system then. Now you have to have the numbers and we talked about those a little bit. But you need more than that. You need to have leadership. You need to have activities outside of the classroom that show that you're making a difference in your community. And they really look at this broadly. They've changed, and I think it's been a really good change, their essays from two to four. And the four essays really give you a chance to talk about the breadth of your activities so you can really show them what you've been doing, how you've you've made an impact in your high school, um, what kinds of things are important to you as far as how you spend your time, what your values are. And that's, those are all things that absolutely matter for Berkeley and L.A. in particular, but, but for all the UCs. They, the top to bottom UCs will look at the holistic parts, your extracurriculars, your essays, things like that to, to help make a decision. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I remember um, as long ago as 10 years ago when I was a, a high school counselor um, in the Los Angeles area, um, UC San Diego basically got up at this counselor conference and said, we want leadership. We expect leadership. We're looking for it. We'll define it fairly broadly. You don't have to be president of the student body, but we want to see some leadership. And so that's, you know, that's not even what some people consider top tier. Um, I mean, it's a great school, so sometimes it's ridiculous to talk about these tiers when you're talking about institutions <laughs> that are this incredible, but, but, you know, they're not as selective as UCLA and UC Berkeley, and yet they were up there really emphasizing that. So I thought that was pretty noticeable and uh, gave me a sense of how important it was. Um, but my sense would be that maybe as you get to the less selective schools, that becomes less important. I mean, how important do you think maybe leadership or, or some of these other holistic issues are for, you know, a, a, like a UC Santa Cruz, a Davis, you know, those kinds of places? Sure. You know, I think it's, I think it's still the case that if I can be blunt, if you're a boring kid but you have really big numbers, great grades and great test scores, you can get in to some of the UCs, some of the less selective UCs. Maybe the, the more selective UCs, no. You can't be boring and get in to, to UCLA, UC Berkeley, Santa Barbara, uh, Davis. That's, that doesn't happen anymore. But, you know, if you don't have those activities, and, and, and look, it's not just about being boring. I'm, I'm, I'm painting with a broad brush here. But, you know, life circumstances happen sometimes, and sometimes students because of those life circumstances, don't have the opportunity to explore extracurriculars like they would have liked, Um, all kinds of reasons that could have happened. There's still some great options out there for students who perform well in the classroom, who do well 
and standardized testing and are looking at the UCs, there's still some great campuses that, that can be a, a good fits for them. Mm-hmm. And I, I remember, too, that when I was a high school counselor, a student, a couple students, actually, who weren't quite as strong. Um, I, certainly, they were good, solid students, but they weren't quite as strong, but both of them had learning disabilities that were well-documented. You know, this was something that had been going on for a while, and they actually did get into UCLA and UC Berkeley. Um, so, mm-hmm. also, I will say that there are sometimes special circumstances that, that these schools are willing to take into account, and that was pretty noticeable to me. And if they see something in the application that suggests that there might be some of those issues there, they'll follow up with the student and ask for additional information in the form of maybe uh, a letter's recommendation in the case of UC Berkeley, maybe additional essays in the case of UCLA or UC Berkeley or, or some of the other campuses as well to try to really get to know who the student is. Ultimately, the UC system, like all colleges and university admission officers, are trying to make sure that whomever they admit is well prepared. They don't want to admit anyone who's not going to be successful. And they want to give everyone the benefit of the, of the benefit of the doubt, and, and really investigate that, and query that, and make sure that they want. Um, excuse me, make sure they get students who are able to handle the workload. Mm-hmm. One thing I remember from those UC conferences too is that they would always encourage students to apply to at least four campuses. So they really didn't, you know, they really wanted students go ahead and apply to UC Berkeley and UCLA. If you need to take, you know, if you need to take a Hail Mary pass at those schools, that's fine. But, you know, put in the application to Riverside, to Santa Cruz, to Davis, you know, at least four colleges. Um, And I really did want to emphasize that because when I get on the phone with people, there's still this rumor going around that, you know, if you apply to UCLA and UC Berkeley, they're going to collaborate and say, you get this one, I'll get that one, you know, and, and I'm like, that's just not what happens. <laughs> I can promise right. you that's not what happens. Yeah, so. absolutely. And I think, you know, one thing is that the system shares data. The campuses do not. And so what do I mean by that? A student can submit test scores if they're applying to those four campuses, and that's great advice, submit test scores to Davis, and they'll be shared system-wide that all colleges can go to the system, match the student ID number, and pull down the test scores. They can't see where else the student has applied. All it does is show that there's test scores available for that student. So, absolutely, there's not collusion. Berkeley is not calling L.A. and saying, hey, I'm going to take student A, you take student B. Um, it, does, it doesn't work like that, and we always do encourage students to apply broadly. And that's another one of my favorite things about the UC. You do the work, you click the buttons, it's applying the same amount of work for one or for nine different campuses. Mm-hmm. And I will emphasize, by the way, in case it wasn't clear, I should have said this at the uh, beginning of the conversation, but the University of California does have its own application. I ran across someone the other day who thought they must be on the common application like everybody else. No, it's its own application, so hopefully that'll make sense, some of the comments that Steve was making earlier about um, you know, what they do and don't look for and the kind of essays that they require. Um, so what about... Um, in-state versus out-of-state. When I talk to in-state California residents, and just so you know, we only have about two minutes for this, um, a lot of them say it's impossible. At this point, it's easier to get into UCLA and UC Berkeley from out-of-state than in-state. Do you know, is that the case at all? I know it's much easier than it was in the past to get in from out-of-state, but is it actually easier, or is it around the same, or what do you think? I'm so glad you asked. I did did a bunch of research around this, and it was fascinating. The numbers, okay, so uh, statistically speaking, the admit rate for out-of-state students at UCLA is higher by Mm. one point. Okay. But the students are much, much better qualified. So um, 
you know, for example, at Berkeley, out-of-state students are 200 points higher on the SAT, three points higher on the ACT. Um, they have a 31 average ACT versus a 28 for in-state students. Um, at UCLA, the admit rate was a couple points higher. The enroll rate was way lower. And so UCLA has the highest percentage of out-of-state students at, at, at 40. UCLA mm-hmm. is 60%. California. The next closest was San Diego at 62. Um, Berkeley is almost two-thirds California residents. So while it's true that it is easier to get in from out of state than it used to be, it's still really hard and preference is absolutely demonstrably given to California residents in terms of expected admitted average test scores, in terms of admitted GPA, um, in terms of admitted uh, uh, number of units taken in high school, et cetera. So UCLA stretches the most for out-of-state kids. That's pretty clear based on the data, but even then that stretch is not that much. And those out-of-state kids that are coming are really, really talented. So it's not the case that two identical kids, one from Nevada, one from California, um, the Nevada kid gets a bump or gets extra consideration in the admissions process. That's, that's simply not the case. Mm-hmm. And that makes sense to me. I will say that the only students, I'm in Connecticut now, and the only students I've had who've applied to California schools, well, I won't say the only, but by and large, uh, they've all been extremely talented and really, really excited about stretching themselves, and they had that record in high school. So, um, all right, well, thanks, Steve. This is really helpful. So, everyone, Steve and I will be taking a short break and then returning to our discussion about the UC schools. In this upcoming segment, we'll be talking about the vibe or the culture of the different campuses and also maybe some special programs that they have to offer. So, thanks so much. Keep, uh, yeah, hold on and listen. Think you've seen everything there is to see in online television? Let us surprise you. Visit voiceamerica.tv today for sports, health, business, and more on demand 24-7. If you're a parent of a high school student, you've probably heard a lot of scary stories about college admissions, about the growing number of applicants, the shrinking number of spots, about how even valedictorians are being turned away. For families of hopeful college students, it's impossible not to worry. But at College Coach, we take the worry out. Our advisors are former senior admissions and college finance officers from all over the country, so they can give you advice that nobody else can about what classes to take, how to prepare for standardized tests, what options are available to pay for college, and most importantly, what admissions officers are looking for when they read an application. We've got more than 15 years of experience and a track record that's helped every single student get into college, most into their top choice schools. So make the decision to come work with College Coach and start your child down the road to the decision that really matters, the one in the envelope that says yes. Visit www.getintocollege.com forward slash getting dash in. Museums are great places to work and wonderful places to visit. But are they essential? How can we improve our museum practice so that museums remain vital and essential players in society? Listen for Museum Life with host Carol Bossert, where each week we'll discuss timely and topical issues of concern to the museum community. Museum Life can be heard live every Friday morning at 10 a.m. Eastern Time, 7 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. 
Stimulating talk gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one Internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com. You are listening to Getting In, a college coach conversation. To reach Elizabeth Heaton or her guest today, please call in to 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Or send an email to gettingin.voiceamerica at gmail.com. Now, back to the show. Welcome back, everyone. Steve and I will now return to our discussion of the UC schools. Um, all right, Steve, so I want to go through and talk about the different UC campuses, and I think most of the time when you do that, everyone sort of, again, talks about UCLA, UC Berkeley, they come up all the time, so I want to kind of start at the less known, more local campuses to try and, um, or, or sort of campuses that are better known regionally as opposed to nationally to try and get them just a little bit more attention, because I, I really, whenever I'm working with students, I'm trying to get them to think beyond kind of the big two, if you will, so... Um, Let's start with UC Merced, and I'll just confess right at the outset that I don't know as much about it. I haven't had a chance to visit because I don't go to the Central Valley too much, but it is um, the newest UC, which is kind of exciting. It is exciting, and you know, one of the things is we look at the numbers and, and see how much more challenging it is to get in than it was maybe a generation ago. One of the things is that the population of California has increased by 30, 35, 40%, and we have not increased capacity in higher education by that amount, right? So it was very exciting when UC Merced came online. I tell kids, you know, if it was a stock, you'd be buying low. Mm-hmm. Uh, I have no doubt that California is going to continue its great investment in public education and higher education. Um, Merced right now uh, is still finding its way a little bit, and it's still the one UC from which you can transfer fairly easily to another UC. Transferring mm-hmm. within the UC system is very challenging. We don't you know, it's, it's, it's very difficult to do for lots of reasons, which don't really need to get into, but it used to be the case that, oh, you know, I started at UC Santa Barbara, I want to go to UCLA, I can transfer. You can't really do that anymore among the UC system, but you still can transfer out of UC Merced after two years should you want to. Um, a lot of people don't. Most people don't. UC uh, Merced is the most Californian. It's 94% California students, which isn't surprising. Um, it is in the Central Valley, hot in the summer, cold in the winter, lots of fog, uh, but a very impressive physical campus from what I've seen of it. And um, uh, good kids, you know, kids who have met the benchmarks, have worked hard in school, and are, and are going to uh, really be able to demonstrate future success from Merced. Yeah, and I think that, I mean, I think this is, we can kind of um, move on, transition to Riverside with this, but I want to say that I know this is true of Riverside, and I'm sure it's true of Merced as well, that sometimes there are advantages to being at campuses that are less competitive, and then I think students get a lot more mentoring. Um, and I'm really guessing that's the case at Merced, and I've read that that's the case, and heard that that's the case, actually, from a student of mine who went to Riverside, that he felt like he got a lot more mentoring and a lot more attention from faculty than his friends at, you know, the better-known larger UCs, um, who really got zero attention from faculty. Is You know, what have you heard about Riverside? No, that's absolutely right, and I, and I think Riverside is a nice um, uh, an, an analogy for Merced. Riverside um, was Merced 20 years ago. It was the newest UC, 
And a lot of students and parents kind of look down their nose and like, oh, Riverside, why would I go there? It's, it's interior California. There's nothing there. It's really great. It's a great school. Um, they have some really interesting uh, pre-med programs for students. Kids get a lot of support there. Um, when I asked a friend of mine, when I was actually just talking conversationally about some of my favorite professors from my undergraduate experience, one of my friends who had gone to one of the big-name UCs said, yeah, I don't have any. Because a lot of my undergraduate experience, which she loved, she loved her undergraduate experience at her big UC, but she didn't have a lot of that one-on-one interaction with faculty members that that I had, and students certainly get at Merced and and, and at Riverside. Mm -hmm. They also have some pretty cool programs. Like, they've got really good programs in the arts. Um, You know, like, I know this is at the graduate level, but I think it speaks to some of the cool stuff that's available on the campus and that they've got a graduate MFA in writing for the performing arts. They've got doctoral programs in dance history and theory. And I know we're focusing on undergrad, but I think when you have those arts programs that says something about the level of support it has on the campus, you know, across the board. Um, It also has an honors program, um, which I think is really exciting. And I read a stat that says one in six graduates goes on to earn a PhD, which I think is remarkable. That is remarkable. Yeah, and and just to the quality of their writing program, I've worked with some professional writers who've come out of Riverside and loved their UCR experience, very proud alumni, and say that they had professors, full professors from their second year, and they got a lot of mentoring and a lot of feedback and a lot of encouragement in their in their profession. So absolutely that that those and it's not always the case where great graduate professional programs trickle down to the undergrad, but it certainly happens at Riverside. Mm-hmm. So let's talk about UC Santa Cruz. Um, that's actually one of the UC campuses I know the best because growing up in California, the two UCs that I applied to were UC Berkeley and UC Santa Cruz. And a lot of people didn't believe this. I got into both, but for me, UC Berkeley just felt too big, too overwhelming. So I said, if it didn't work out at the private school, you know, I was worried about finances when I was looking at my small private college. I was going to go to UC Santa Cruz, and a lot of people scoffed at me, but it just felt homier to me. It felt like I was going to get more faculty interaction. Um, and I, I loved the campus, although I will say some of my students have told me that they hate it because it looks like kind of like a summer camp. And I'm like, yeah, that's what's awesome about it. So <laughs> you, you definitely have to figure out whether it's the right place for you. What, is, what have your impressions been of UC Santa Cruz? And that's, and that's another great reason to go visit these places. I love Santa Cruz as well. I have family in the area. It's one of my favorite campuses. You know, any campus you're on where you just smell the redwoods every day, like, it just, it's it's an amazing, impressive place. Um, great faculty interaction. And I suspect that you sensed, Sally, when you were looking at, 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 at those two options, Berkeley and Santa Cruz, and, and many students have expressed similar um, reactions that they felt like they could really get a lot of attention, again, you know, from faculty members and felt like they would not be lost, not be in a more competitive environment, Santa Cruz is, is more of a collaborative environment. And I think that, that matters. Now, Santa Cruz is also, UC Santa Cruz, the campus is separated physically from town a little bit. It's not right in the city the way some other of the UC campuses are. Um, San Diego and La Jolla, yeah, but you can still, it's, it's not as physically separated. Um, UCLA is right there in Westwood. Santa Cruz, you get on the bus, you get on the bike, you, you get in your car and you drive up the hill. And you are on that campus. It has that college town campus feel a little bit more than some of the other campuses, which, again, you know, you loved. Other students say, you know what? It's a little too remote. It's a little too summer camp for me. Um, Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, and it really comes down to, you know, definitely visit so you can figure out what you're going to prefer. Because you might be surprised. I mean, I grew up in a city, and I liked that remoteness. So the fact that, for example, you might think you're a city person, um, you know, might not be the case when you're looking at college campuses. It was the opposite for me. I grew up in the country, and I definitely wanted an urban experience. So, yeah, <laughs> you got to go visit, for sure. Yeah. Fair enough. The other thing about Santa Cruz that always seemed noticeable is, you know, we called it, you know, back in my day, we kind of called Santa Cruz pretty granola. Um, so it was definitely mm-hmm. felt more liberal than maybe the, than the other campuses, other than maybe UC Berkeley. Is that your impression today as well? Absolutely. And, and um it's interesting, though. I've, I've worked uh, professionally with a couple of people who have gone to Santa Cruz um, from Southern California, urban Southern California, students of color, and they found that, yes, it's, it's uh, very liberal, but it's also pretty white. And so I think for a student of color in particular, it's, it's worth taking a look at and making sure it's going to feel comfortable. Um, some of the conversations they had, they, they, they were a bit surprised being in such a liberal place that they were having the conversations they were around uh, ethnicity and identity. But, um, yeah, it it's definitely has that reputation, and the city of Santa Cruz itself is, is, is very progressive, very liberal. Yeah, and that's true. You bring up a good point. I mean, I think a student looking for a lot of diversity, UC Riverside might actually be the better choice as one, one example. Yeah. yeah, yeah. All right, what about UC Davis? I feel like Davis is, you know, again, it's kind of an interior city, but I actually love the town of Davis. Again, I kind of like these college town environments. Um, Davis, to me, feels like an old western town, um, you know, just kind of sleepy and, and relaxed, and I, that, that really appealed to me when I went by there the other day. What are your observations about Davis? Yeah, it is, it is absolutely that college town. I think of all of the UC campuses, Davis is the one that, and uh, uh, Merced, maybe we'll get there. But Davis is so big, and the town is so small, relatively, right? I mean, you could have a, the biggest college in the world. If you're in L.A., you're not going to feel it. Um, Davis is absolutely a college town. Everybody rides their bikes everywhere. You can get, you know, great Thai or Mongolian or Ethiopian at 1 in the morning. It's, it's definitely has that college town vibe. And I really liked it as well. Great sense of community there. For kids who I've worked with, families who were looking at college from that area, they felt they wanted to get away, as often students do, because they said it was the Davis bubble. It's so self-enclosed that, that you don't have the churn that you get at Berkeley. You don't have the churn that you get in, in, in L.A. But um, it's, it's great academics. Um, originally, and their mascot, uh, their, their sports mascot is still the Aggies. Originally, you know, it, was, it had an emphasis on agriculture, but all the life sciences, very broad in the sciences now, and, and um, uh, they, they punch above their weight when their students apply to med school. I will also say, speaking about cool programs, they have a world-famous, world-quality winemaking um, learning program. I don't know what that, I'm sure I'm viticultural, I guess is the word. Um, I remember reading about a winemaker in Italy in a, you know, one of these revered winemaking areas who had gone to UC Davis to get a degree in winemaking. I thought that was pretty remarkable. That's awesome. And, and using that, can we segue to Santa Barbara next? Yeah, Absolutely. Because I met a very interesting uh, woman a few weeks ago who had a double major in geography and geology with a minor in Spanish from Santa Barbara, and she is now a, a winemaker. 
Oh, that's really interesting. See, and I love these kind of stories because so many people think your major determines your job, even though if they, you know, look all around them in general, it really doesn't. So, like, right. that's, did she have anything to say about how UC Santa Barbara helped her get there? Absolutely. And, you know, she, she said that she was struggling. She was pre-med, as mm-hmm. many students are. Her first year, she realized that she didn't love that. And, and what she liked was rocks and maps. And so she talked with her advisor. She felt she got excellent advising there. And they really did a good job of helping her be creative about finding, first of all, dialing down some of the pressure about what her professional path would be and helping her have the confidence to explore the academic and intellectual areas that really stimulated her. And... Uh, helped her set up some interesting internships, and she saw that as a path because there's a lot of winemaking uh, territory around Santa Barbara as well. And with her Spanish minor, she got a job at a vineyard, socially met someone from Chile who was there looking at different different uh, grape plants, I guess. I don't know. Um, it's sort of not my area. But, but just her, her story absolutely su- suggested that Santa Barbara supported her in her intellectual pursuits. Now, you never want to extrapolate a case of one student to the entire student body, but Santa Barbara does have some really interesting programs, and they they do seem to really do well across the board in their advising and supporting their students and and pursuing what what they want to learn about. Okay. All right. Excellent. Now, I just want to ask one more question about Santa Barbara. I mean, I always hear from students when I suggest it, well, I've heard it's a party school. And my reaction is, I really don't think it is any more of a party school than other schools in the UC system. Um, For some reason, it's gotten that reputation. Those reputations tend to stick. But you'll really be surprised if you go to college and expect to not see parties going on. uh, What's your impression of that? Yeah. As one of my friends as one of my friends put it, he said, well, you know, you can go to any college in the country and make bad decisions. Any college in the country is a party school. But if Santa Barbara is a party school, they're really, really smart kids who are doing the partying. Um, right. And I think that's right. I mean, you know, it's, it's really hard to get in there, and they're really smart kids, and they're taking advantage of their opportunities. It's a, it's a beautiful campus. Um, it is set, a, set apart a little bit from Santa Barbara, um, right, on the, right on the bluff, looking over the Pacific. Uh, it, just great, great program there. Mm-hmm. All right, so we only have about three minutes left, so we'll probably only be able to talk about UC Irvine, which I think is fine. I feel like we've hit the schools that are maybe a little more neglected but are still just incredible. So what are your thoughts about Irvine? Irvine is, um, has really done a great job of moving past its sort of commuter school past. Um, it has a really great sense of community now. They have a lot of fraternities and sororities if students are looking for Greek life there. Um, it's uh, really... Uh, some of my some of my students who are Asian have disparagingly referred to it as UC Asian. You look at the numbers, and it's slightly more Asian than some of the other campuses. But that that does uh, have, as you say, you know, they get these reputations and and they tend to stick. Um, it does have that sort of perception within California, but it is a diverse campus. Lots of uh, great programs there, and students really find that the social life there is is great as well. The other thing I wanted to mention is I think, you know, people, I hear people talking about the sciences there, but they have a great fiction writing program as well. I think it's undergraduate level. Yeah, I read that. Um, I was looking through the FIS guide to kind of try and, you know, bone up on these different campuses, and they mentioned a really good fiction writing program. So don't think you've got to be a scientist to go there. All right, and so with maybe just about one also, minute I left. I should also mention, just real, real quick, they have a school of business, which is unusual for the UC system. 
Okay, so not just kind of a, a major that's sort of oriented towards it, but a full school of right. business. Full school of business, yeah. Okay, great. Now, just quickly, UC San Diego. Well, we only have 30 seconds left, but I'll just mention that one of the things I like about UC San Diego is um, they have the school system there, and I think that that helps make a smaller, make this sort of very large UC school into kind of a place with a little better community. Is that your impression as well? I, that's, yeah, that's exactly right. It does, it does break down that, that massive UC campus into smaller communities, and that's really going to be your cohort. Your schoolhouse, your school is going to be your cohort during the four years that you're there, and they're not dependent on majors. So you're not just going to be in a school with just engineers or just pre-med folks. Um, mm-hmm. you'll be, uh, you will have a mix within those, within those schools, but it does make UC San Diego feel a little more like home. Mm-hmm. Okay, great. Listen, Steve, this is great. Thanks so much. I really appreciate your time today. It was my pleasure. Thanks for having me on, Sally. Okay, stick around, listeners, as next I'll be talking with Alex Bickford about negotiating scholarship offers. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. If you're a parent of a high school student, you've probably heard a lot of scary stories about college admissions, about the growing number of applicants, the shrinking number of spots, about how even valedictorians are being turned away. For families of hopeful college students, it's impossible not to worry. But at College Coach, we take the worry out. Our advisors are former senior admissions and college finance officers from all over the country, so they can give you advice that nobody else can about what classes to take, how to prepare for standardized tests, what options are available to pay for college, and most importantly, what admissions officers are looking for when they read an application. We've got more than 15 years of experience and a track record that's helped every single student get into college, most into their top choice schools. So make the decision to come work with College Coach and start your child down the road to the decision that really matters, the one in the envelope that says yes. Visit www.getintocollege.com forward slash getting dash in. Are you finding your frequency? It can be described as that space between failure and success. It's the future of digital media. It's finding your voice. It's engaging topics, content, and ideas. Jeff and Ryan discuss the digital media space and all of its aspects. It's about making the mistakes, taking the chances, summoning the intestinal fortitude to step out of your comfort zone, and discovering what you can accomplish when you decide to try, decide to learn, decide that you have something to say, and find your frequency. Why? Fridays at 2 p.m. Pacific Time, 5 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com You are listening to Getting In, a College Coach Conversation. To reach Elizabeth Heaton or her guest today, please call in to 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Or send an email to gettingin.voiceamerica at gmail.com. Now, back to the show. Welcome back, everyone. Alex and I will now be discussing how to negotiate scholarship offers. Welcome, Alex. Hi, Sally. Thanks for having me. 
Thanks so much for coming on. So let's, so you're here to talk about negotiating scholarships. So let's start with the example of someone whose son received a generous scholarship from one college, but maybe less from another. So this is a strong student, but, you know, the colleges are not offering, you know, he's getting scholarships, but the colleges are not offering the same amount. So how do the parents and the student go about asking for more money? Sure. And I, you know, I think that's probably one of the more common questions that, that I'll get from families. And, First, we got to understand that that's probably pretty typical, right? Uh, getting a really great scholarship offer from one college where you might be considered to be an exceptional student uh, and a lesser scholarship offer from another college where you might be a good but not great student uh, can be very typical. So the first thing that we need to understand is whether or not these schools are on a competing level. Uh, whether or not that when uh, when the school that has provided maybe a little bit less of a scholarship offer looks at this other college that has provided a more generous offer, if they see them as a competing school, as a, as a competitor of theirs. And if they do, we certainly have the opportunity to go back to the school with a lesser offer and simply ask for more. Uh, how, how you do that is, the way I like to do it is starting out by writing an email. Uh, sending that to, if it's a scholarship offer, probably the uh, admissions office. If it's a financial aid, a need-based financial aid offer, probably uh, to the uh, Office of Financial Aid. In really just outlining, uh, doing it from either the student's perspective or the parent's perspective, uh, outlining in the beginning how much your student loves that school, it's their top choice, and I think that's an important thing to hit on, that this is my top choice school. Uh, if I get more money, I'm essentially going to come here. Uh, uh, telling them that you appreciate what they've done so far, so the acceptance in the school, the scholarship that they may have already offered. Uh, but the finances are, of course, playing a role in the decision-making process, uh, and that you have some competing offers. And at that point, I like to put in there what those offers are and who they're from. So it could be that you have, uh, in this case, uh, a student has a more generous scholarship offer from another school. Uh, That would be one thing to list. Uh, And certainly you want to list uh, schools. If you have multiple schools in in that, uh, with that situation, you want to list those schools out. Maybe you have a really good uh, state school opportunity uh, that might be less expensive to begin with, uh, listing that school out there. Uh, and, and asking them if it's possible to close the gap. Mm-hmm. And then really j- just concluding with, a, with a, I appreciate your time is valuable. Uh, someone from my house will follow up in a couple of weeks to see if there's been any kind of resolution. Mm-hmm. And I think that point about following up is important because stuff gets lost. And financial aid officers tend to be pretty overwhelmed, as are admissions officers, by the way. So, um, But I wanted to follow up on something that you said in terms of a competitor college. And I think that's important to note. Um, I imagine that I don't think, you know, as an admissions officer who used to administer scholarships, there was never any harm in anybody asking for more, but I think it is important to note that if, you know, a far less competitive school offered you a big scholarship, that doesn't mean that a school that admits a lot fewer students um, is going to follow up because they're going to kind of say, well, look, I mean, we're the better school. Whether that's true or not might not be the case, but... Essentially, try and think about competitor schools this way. Uh, what percentage of admits 
what percentage of applicants does the school admit? And you can look that up on the college board, by the way, on their college search engine. Um, and roughly kind of what are their average SAT scores, their average GPA, you know, try and get a sense, and that will help you. Probably when you developed your list, you knew whether a school was a reach, a mid-range, or a safety. So the fact that a safety gave you um, a huge scholarship doesn't mean that your reach is going to match it. So just kind of wanted to, you know, amplify a little bit what you said there. So. So, Alex, you kind of mentioned sending an email. Who um, and you said sending it to admissions. Is there anyone in particular that you would go to 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 ask? Yeah. So, if it's if it's a scholarship specifically, uh, it would be admissions, and it would be if you have uh, whoever's working your case. If you have someone at admissions that you have been in contact with, uh, I think it's always great to kind of bring in your contact. Uh, if you don't have a contact in admissions. Uh, the director of admissions is okay. The general admissions email is okay. Uh, but if you have somebody specific that's working on your territory, uh, I think that would be ideal. And the same with financial aid. If it's a need-based financial aid offer that we're, we're worried about here, uh, then it's whoever's working your case. And oftentimes they do it by alphabet and financial aid and by territory and admissions. Uh, uh, but certainly someone in that office should be able to give you a name of, of who is responsible uh, for you. Mm-hmm. And then when should people ask? You know, when should they pursue this? Sure, and I think that's a kind of a little bit more of a complicated question this year than it has been in the past. Uh, this year uh, is, is a year that is interesting in a way because financial aid applications have been submitted in October uh, as opposed to in January. And often and students are finding themselves now getting financial aid offers earlier but maybe not all of the financial aid offers. So I like to wait until uh, wait wait to negotiate until you have pretty much all the leverage that you're ever going to have. Uh, meaning you have as many acceptances as you can, as many scholarship or financial aid offers as you think you're going to get uh, before you negotiate. What I don't want to see is, in your example, Sally, uh, going from a what's considered to be one of your safety or no problem schools trying to negotiate with a just right or, or, or a challenging school uh, when maybe you have an offer coming from uh, a college that's better suited to negotiate with them with and you going in without all the leverage that you could have. Uh, so wait until you get the majority of your offers in uh, and then do it as soon as possible after that, but mm-hmm. definitely before you deposit. Definitely yes. before you deposit. <laughs> yeah. Once you've deposited, <laughs> you've, you've lost a lot of your leverage, basically. Yeah, um, you really have. Yeah. All right. So let's talk about another case where a student doesn't seem to have much leverage. You know, um, for example, um, you know, what if, uh, what if my student was just accepted early decision two? Um, and just so everybody knows, there's early decision one, um, which is basically the first round of early decision, November 1st, generally speaking, and students find out in mid-December. Um, but there's also early decision two at a lot of schools. Early decision two is often a January 1 deadline, and then you might hear the middle of February. And the important thing to note is that early decision is a binding agreement. You're saying, I will go no matter what. However, the one exception to that is if financially it really 
isn't going to work out for you. You thought that it would. You did your due diligence um, to figure out what you thought you might be getting from the college, and it just didn't come through. So, so let's talk a little bit about a little more about that. The student who was admitted early decision two, can that student negotiate the financial aid package if they already have some very generous offers from other colleges? Right. And, you know, and that's, a, that's a tough one. The student's kind of backed into a corner here. Uh, and with early decision two, even more so than early decision one, the student's likely to have other offers on the table. The student's likely to have other acceptances and scholarship offers on the table because it's a little bit later on in the process. Uh, so, uh, once again, it, it doesn't hurt to ask for more, but your leverage is really tight. Uh, you really have to demonstrate to the school that, like you said, you've done your due diligence. We thought that this was going to be around what the school was going to cost for us, and it's much different than we thought. Uh, what can we kind of do here? So it's not going to be the case of a family who knew they weren't going to qualify for financial aid, shouldn't have been expecting any scholarships and say, oh, I just really got this great scholarship offer. Can you, can you help me out? Uh, that's unlikely to be something that's successful. The one area where it might be an area where you might be successful is, uh, once again, a competing college uh, offered me this, and I demonstrated some needs, and I thought I was going to have a little bit more financial aid from you guys, but you're falling a little bit short. That could be an area uh, of wiggle room. Uh, it's really, really tight, though. In uh, I always tell parents that I'm working with and families that I'm working with to really temper expectations, especially when you're dealing uh, with early decisions. Uh, and you really have to understand that it's unlikely to happen. And in a lot of cases, it may not be worth the effort in that scenario uh, because you are in a binding agreement. So you really have to understand that this is something that's unusual has happened. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So all that being said, will asking for more money hurt the student? I mean, I can tell you that from an admissions perspective, it will not mean that admissions decision would be withdrawn. You know, we, you know, I, I had circumstances where I was administering scholarships, especially at University of, Schol- of Chicago, and people would come to me for scholarships all the time. And first of all, we didn't negotiate. Second of all, I was kind of like, look, I felt sometimes in some cases like saying, look, you were lucky to get in. You really don't get who gets here. I mean, you know, I, I mean, I, you, you don't say that to people, but I remember a couple of conversations where I thought, seriously, dude, you were lucky to get in. But I, regardless, I wasn't like I was punitive with that student. It was then up to them what they decided to do from that point on. But so what about from a, their current aid package? I mean, what happens, what happens with that? Is there, any, is there any chance that that might get, you know, reduced or anything? So I've never seen the scenario out there where a family has ever lost uh, is certainly the acceptance or ever lost any of the aid they've already had. I kind of, when I talk to families, I kind of put it this way. Today, you're in your kind of worst position, right? Your school is costing X amount of dollars. You're probably not going to get any worse than this. Uh, so you can only get better by trying to take some action uh, with this and trying to negotiate with the school. I was working with a family uh, this was a number of years ago, uh, where the dad had uh, had called me and uh, his dream school had offered him uh, a small scholarship, uh, but another school had offered uh, a scholarship that was uh, a, more like $20,000 a year more uh, than his dream school. And he was asking me whether or not he should negotiate. He was not from this country, is not part of his culture. 
I spent almost an hour uh, convincing this gentleman that it was okay to negotiate and that, yes, in fact, you, you should take this time. So we wrote a letter, um, kind of outlined it as we had discussed. The school came back and offered him an additional $10,000 a year uh, in a scholarship. So he came mm-hmm. back to me all excited and said, you know, we've gotten $10,000 a year in a scholarship. And, uh, you know, I'm, I'm really excited because that's a $40,000 win in my mind. Uh, and, and he's saying, should I negotiate again? And so I, I took a step back and said, at this point, uh, maybe your relationship with this, this person who's helped you in this university uh, for the next four years is more important than anything else that you might get from them. But he kind of uh, got the bug and wanted to negotiate again. So he did again. He went back to them one more time, got an additional $2,500 a year, uh, which $12,500 a year, $50,000 for four years. Now, caution, you know, like the infomercials you see on TV, these results are not typical. Uh, $12,500 is not typical whatsoever. However, uh, going there and getting a small two or $3,000 increase with really no risk, uh, those results are much more typical. Right. Absolutely. Yeah, no, I always tell people just ask. You know, it, it might be something small, but asking is not going to hurt you. Um, now, I, I do warn people that, look, there are schools that don't negotiate. I mean, I worked at one school that did, Whittier College, and I worked at Chicago that didn't negotiate, really didn't, didn't negotiate sure. either. Um, unless, you know, if you could come back with new information, you might get a need-based um, bump, but you right. weren't going to get a merit scholarship bump. But again, it never hurt you. I mean, I just really cannot, you know, absolutely cannot stress that enough. So, all right, Alex. And you made think- a good point there. Just one. So, great point on the uh, on the need base. If you do have a change of circumstances and something is different than what was on the financial aid application, uh, that's huge. My colleague Shannon uh, Vasconcelos uh, spoke with you guys last week. Uh, and so if you wanted to reference back to last week's show, uh, you can hear more about negotiating uh, specifically need-based with a change of circumstance. Yeah, always, always approach colleges with that. All right, so I think we're all set for today. Thank you so much, Alex. Um, All right, thanks so much to my guests today, Steve and Alex. Now I'd like to tell you about our show next week. Ian Fisher will be the host, and he's got a great show planned. He and two other former admission officers will be taking you through how an admission officer reads applications, and then one of our college finance consultants will be discussing how to plan financially for all four years of college. Yes, all four years. I've noticed a lot of parents, they think a lot about the first year, but they don't necessarily add up the cost for all four. Um, Also, keep in mind that if you're interested in finding out more about the University of California school system. Um, We did have a show on the UC application itself, so how to fill out the application on August 27, 2015, um, and transferring to the UCs from the California Community College System on May 19, 2016. Now, I want to note that the UC application has changed since 2015, but a lot of it has stayed the same, so I think you still will probably find a lot of the tips to be useful. And finally, I want to remind you that every show is accessible 24-7 on the Voice America website, and you can also download them for free on iTunes. If you check out the archives, you'll find all our past shows, including those featuring the Schools Out and Schools In segments, which began on June 30th, 2015. Or you can go back and check out last week's show, um, which aired on February 16th on National Merit Process and Awards. I mention this because I know this is a really popular topic for families. 
years. If you think your child might qualify for national merit, check this one out. And if you like our show, please be sure to rate us on iTunes. It takes only a moment of your time, and it's absolutely free. Last, don't forget, we're here every Thursday at 4 p.m. Eastern Time, 1 p.m. Pacific Time. So check us out. Thank you for tuning in to Getting In, a College Coach Conversation, hosted by Elizabeth Heaton. Please join us again next Thursday at 1 p.m. Pacific Time, 4 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Have a good week. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management.